Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at CalEndow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org health dash equity. From KVPR, you're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. On today's show, we bring you an audio documentary from a colleague at KQED who spent more than a year investigating the COVID outbreak at Foster Farms. Plus, a Fresno State professor who has spent decades studying Russia shares how the war in Ukraine will have lasting impacts on the international world order. But first, the California Department of Healthcare Services has rolled out a new program to help some low-income residents eliminate asthma triggers in their homes. But five months into the effort, KVPR's Madi Bolaños says families are struggling to get these services. It's a warm Monday evening in Madera. Maria Rubio's youngest kids are playing a video game in their living room. The windows are closed and the blinds are drawn to keep the heat out and the house cool. But Rubio worries about what they can't keep out. Rubio points to a corner in her bedroom where black clusters of mold are forming. Rubio and her five kids have suffered with asthma for years. Rubio and her oldest son were diagnosed first almost 20 years ago. She says the doctor told her there were a number of things that could trigger asthma, like dust mites, mold, cockroaches, and air pollution. A lot of things in the house can cause it, she says, and also the pesticides. We walk through the hallway and into the kitchen where she kneels down to show me the wood under the sink. It's expanding due to humidity, which is another asthma trigger. She says she asked her landlord to change it, but they just put in another wood panel and painted over it. She says she's tried to ask her landlord to fix these issues, but she's usually met with no response or cheap fix-it solutions. And she says she's scared to keep asking. She says she didn't want to ask for anything more because they've been kicked out of their rental before with nowhere to go. The Rubio family is among roughly 2 million low-income Californians who have health insurance coverage from Medi-Cal and have been diagnosed with asthma. According to state data, about 220,000 of them have poorly controlled asthma, and some will benefit from a new state program that aims to reduce asthma by offering remediation services, like removing mold, installing air purifiers, and even replacing carpeting, blinds, and mattresses. The asthma efforts are part of an $8 billion initiative to transform Medi-Cal and target the state's sickest and most expensive patients. But getting the services has proven to be more difficult than expected. Kevin Hamilton is the director of the Central California Asthma Collaborative, the organization leading these efforts in the San Joaquin Valley. The thing that that bothers me the most is it's more cumbersome for the patient. Take the Rubio family. To get help, they would first need to get a referral from a medical provider. From there, their health plan would have to approve the referral. Once it's been approved, the partnering community-based organization would visit their home to determine what services are needed. 
Then the organization sends the assessment back to the health plan for one final approval before it can move forward with the services. I asked Hamilton how many people in the Valley have been referred to him since the start of the program on January 1st. One. Wow. Okay. That's what we're saying. Just one. One referral from the five health plans his organization contracts to deliver these services. That's out of the thousands of eligible Medi-Cal patients in Madera, Fresno, Tulare, Kings, and Kern counties, according to J.C. Cooper, the California Medicaid director. She acknowledges the program's slow start, but says it's expected. But I think identifying individuals, training providers to um, make referrals for new services, education and outreach to providers and beneficiaries, um, all of those things take a little bit of time to get nuanced and implemented. Back in Madera, Maria Rubio is stirring up some chorizo and eggs for dinner. She says a community health worker told her about the services, and she thinks they could be really helpful. She says she's heard that there's going to be assistance to help them live a little better in their home so they don't continue to suffer from these illnesses. Her family could qualify for the program, but to get it, they generally need to get a referral. But Rubio is hesitant to go to the doctor because of bad experiences in the past. It's one more obstacle the state faces in helping families that need these services the most. For KVPR News, I'm Adi Bolaños. This story is part of the Central Valley News Collaborative, which is supported by the Central Valley Community Foundation, with technology and training support by Microsoft Corp. It was produced in partnership with KHN. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. This week on KVPR's podcast, The Other California, we take you to the small rural town of Livingston, where the largest employer is Foster Farms. According to a congressional report released just last week, the meatpacking giant put workers at risk during the height of the pandemic. Our colleague at KQED, reporter Alex Hall, investigated Foster Farms for over a year and has this documentary, which first aired on the California Report magazine. Mr. Brill? Yeah. Okay, great. I'm recording now. We take every precaution we can to protect uh, our employees when they're at work. Truthfully, Alex, it's a pretty simple story. But nothing is ever just a simple story. I'm Alex Hall, in for Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. I cover the Central Valley for KQED and the California Report, and I spent about a year and a half looking into foster farms. We're here! Two fresh foster farms chickens! (laughs) It's a major poultry processor in the U.S. Foster farms, fresh chicken. Always natural, always fresh, always California grown. Today, we're bringing you a documentary we first aired last fall about an investigation I did into the company. At the end of the episode, we'll share some updates on what's happened since we first aired this story. In 2020, Foster Farms became the site of one of the nation's deadliest COVID-19 outbreaks at a meat or poultry plant. During the pandemic, as plants stayed open to maintain the food supply, workers got sick from COVID-19, 
some even died. I talked to people whose spouses and family members spent decades packaging chicken or fixing machines inside foster farms, and I pored over thousands of pages of emails and safety investigation records. I found foster farms didn't always give a complete picture of the problem to health officials, state regulators, and their own employees. We got a number of complaints of people that work there. Everyone's scared because there's so many people and like there's no way we can social distance. The story's airing tomorrow morning. Are, are you defying the county health order? Looking back at the past year and a half, there was a cost to keeping those plants open. Hundreds of people tested positive for the virus, at least 20 were hospitalized, and 16 people died. Good afternoon, this is with Cal OSHA. It's customary for us to call and, you know, interview the next of kin when there's a fatality that's related possibly to work. On today's show, we're going to meet two families who lost loved ones who worked at foster farms. Families who are still grieving, struggling financially, trying to make sense of what happened. He said, coming to work, coming to work, coming to work. I said, I don't want to lose my dad. I lose my uncle, you know, I don't want to lose my dad. And there is anger, you know, because he, he should be alive. Foster Farms has multiple poultry processing plants throughout the country. And in California, they're clustered in the Central Valley. One of those plants is in South Fresno. It's called the Cherry Plant because it's on South Cherry Avenue in an industrial part of the city. The chicken processing itself happens in a gray building with a gated parking lot. Semi-trucks with Foster Farms rooster logo on the side roll out full of packaged meat past a guard and a manicured lawn. In December 2020, there was a major COVID-19 outbreak here. In documents from the state's investigation, there are dated entries for each time a person got sick. Employee number one became ill on August 21st, tested positive on August 24th, and was hospitalized on September 3rd at 8 p.m. Employee number two became ill at work and told her supervisor she wasn't feeling well. He asked her to stay for the rest of the shift. The employee passed out at home the morning of November 25th and was pronounced dead at Clovis. Employee number three, hospitalized December 8th and tested positive for COVID-19 December 5th. Employee number 12, hospitalized December 20th, tested December 4th, positive for COVID-19 December 5th. When you read this over and over again, it's kind of upsetting because these weren't just numbered employees. They were real people with names and personal stories and plans for the future. Someone's husband, someone's mom or dad or their grandparent. Many Foster Farms employees are immigrants from India, Laos, Vietnam, or Mexico, who came to the U.S. decades ago, got a job at the plant, and never left. When the pandemic started, a lot of those people found themselves still working at Foster Farms, but now in their 60s or 70s and vulnerable to COVID-19. One of them was Gregorio Velasquez, a forklift driver and pallet jack operator. That's the equipment they use at places like Home Depot to move stacks of boxes and big, heavy appliances. Mm -hmm. 
Gregorio's wife, Rosa Velasquez, lights a red votive candle on an altar in the corner of their dimly lit living room. No sé, ya desde ese día que regresamos aquí, siempre prendemos velas. She's kept candles burning continuously for months now, near a collage of photos of Gregorio. Some from when he was young in Mexico, and more recent ones from their life together in the Central Valley town of Sanger, near Fresno. Their son's graduation, Halloween, and birthdays. Even though Gregorio was 73 when he died from COVID, in the photos, he doesn't look a day over 40. In December of 2020, Rosa says, Gregorio had been at the cherry plant for about 20 years. No creo que les haya notificado si alguien se enfermaba. No Rosa creo. says she doesn't think Porque the company was telling sabido, workers when other people at the no, plant were getting sick. Una vez sí me dijo, no he visto a un señor aquí. She says Gregorio would tell her, you know, I haven't seen that one guy in a while. Maybe he got COVID. But he didn't seem to have official information no, no sé. about people getting sick. Pues si te preocupas, si te preocupas. When she and Gregorio would watch the news, she says, they heard about a lot of people dying from COVID all across California. It was scary, but Gregorio had to go to work. So did his co-workers Jatinder Paul Singh and Baljinder Dillon, two cousins who were close like brothers. I spoke with Jatinder Paul and his wife, Joginder Kaur, in their living room in Fresno. Jatinder Paul lives with his wife, their son, daughter-in-law, and grandkids, three generations under one roof. When we spoke, he was wearing a black turban and checkered short-sleeve collared shirt. He's in his 70s, and his eyes are serious and focused when he talks. Like many Foster Farms employees, Jatinder Paul is from the Indian state of Punjab. He tells me in Punjabi that he worked at the cherry plant for 12 years. His job was to take the packaged chicken, put it in a box, and pass it down the line. One night last fall, when Jatinder Paul and his family were at home eating dinner, they say they got a phone call. His son Ravi said the call came from Foster Farms, letting them know that Jatinder Paul's most recent COVID test at work had come back positive. Everybody sit on the table and eating food, you know, and you receive a call or your dad is a positive, you know. My wife, my kids shocked too, you know. Ravi says everyone was really freaked out. Six people in their family were sitting around the dinner table. After die, what do you expect? You know, maybe six people die. They all quarantined in separate rooms, but pretty much everyone got COVID anyway. Jatinder Paul says his cousin, Baljinder Dillon, a mechanic at the same Foster Farms plant, also tested positive that week. Baljinder and Gregorio got sick around late November, early December of 2020. But there had been positive cases at Foster Farms as early as April. And that's when I first started reporting this story. After a source sent me a photo of a letter the company gave to employees notifying them a worker at the cherry plant had tested positive. Back then, it was news when one person at a workplace had COVID. So I gave the company a call. Truthfully, Alex, it's a pretty simple story. That's Ira Brill, Foster Farms Vice President of Communications. One positive does not constitute a risk. It's a positive that we hoped 
would not happen. As I said, we are doing everything possible and have taken many of these steps before other companies have to limit the impact on the workforce. Brill said the country was facing a protein shortage and poultry producers faced a critical task, maintain the food supply. Foster Farms, he said, was trying to meet that need without putting the community at risk. Was this worker on an assembly line or was it a different kind of Alex, I'm going to have to wrap this up. This person, I believe, worked on the processing line. It's not an assembly line. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm just not familiar with the difference between those two. But I just have a couple other questions. I asked if Foster Farms would consider shutting down the processing plants. He said the company was in constant contact with officials at the local, state, and federal levels. And those officials wanted to keep the plants operating. Okay, and I think the last question that I think Does a lot of Does that answer your really, question? Not really, honestly. Does it? No. Uh, then, let me, then let me explain that further. Okay. How, what part don't you, know, don't you understand? Well, the question was, is there any scenario under which you would consider closing the plant or curtailing operations? What did I just say? I said we will continue to operate these plants and fulfill the mission that we've been asked to undertake only to the degree that we do not represent a threat to the community. So where is that threshold then? How do you determine that? is a threshold that's determined by the CDC, by USDA, by local health officials. Brill was right. Federal officials did want meatpacking plants to stay open. A few days after this phone call in April of 2020, Foster Farms and the rest of the meat industry got a big boost from... The White House. President Trump says he will invoke the Defense Production Act to order meat processing plants to stay open during the pandemic. It comes amid warnings that meat shelves and grocery stores could go empty this week. According to the union representing workers, at least 22 plants have closed. Just two months later, in June of 2020, there was an outbreak at a Foster Farms plant an hour north of Fresno in Livingston. Emails from that time show county health officials didn't trust the COVID testing data they were getting from Foster Farms. And in August, the county realized eight workers had already died from the virus. But they didn't learn about all of those deaths right away because Foster Farms didn't immediately tell them. Health officials are calling it the most severe outbreak of COVID-19 in Merced County. It's at the Foster Farms plant in Livingston. In late August 2020, the Merced County Department of Public Health, with backing from the California Department of Justice and the State Health Department, announced it was shutting down Foster Farms' plant in Livingston until it was safe to reopen. But the next day, workers started getting text messages telling them to come into the plant. The text read, all active employees should report to work for their next scheduled shift. Sites are safely operating. I left Ira Brill a voicemail asking about those texts. Later that night, he called me back saying he couldn't give me a comment by my deadline, but he just wanted to let me know there are layers to every story. The story's airing tomorrow morning. So it's going to say that you declined to comment and that workers are getting text messages to come into the plant, even though there's a county health order to close the plant. Are you defying the county health order? He hung up on me. That night, the county health department announced a 48-hour stay of the order, 
to give Foster Farms more time to prepare to shut down the plant. They, <laughs> they just don't understand. That's Geev Kashkuli. He's the political and legislative director for the United Farm Workers, the union representing workers at the plant at the time. Why was their delay more important than making sure nobody else dies? It just, we just don't understand. Around this time, the county, Foster Farms and its lawyers, and officials from multiple state and federal agencies, even Trump's deputy secretary of the USDA, discussed the situation in a series of conference calls. And then, all of a sudden, the health department released a revised order, limiting the shutdown to just six days. Some 400 workers ended up getting infected during that outbreak. Nine people died. After the plant reopened, Foster Farms hired a physician to oversee its COVID response and promised to keep health officials in the loop about future cases. But then, three months later, around Thanksgiving 2020, COVID cases started to spike again. Rosa Velasquez says her husband, Gregorio, the forklift operator at the plant in Fresno, started feeling sick and stopped going into work. She says he was weak, and then he couldn't breathe. Rosa called the doctor, who told her to take him to the hospital immediately. They put him in a wheelchair. Rosa was worried, but she thought they're going to make him better. Around this time, I got a text message from the Farm Workers Union about rumors of another outbreak. I reached out to Ira Brill at Foster Farms again, several times, but he didn't respond. The state health department and Fresno County confirmed there were two new outbreaks at the company's plants. So I sent Brill another email. Almost immediately, his three-word reply showed up in my inbox, sent to me and the company's public relations firm. It said, continue to ignore. Brill had accidentally replied all to my email, revealing that he had been telling the PR firm to ignore my questions. I later got emails through a public records request showing Brill told Fresno County he would only speak with journalists that had been reasonable in their past coverage, and that he does not, quote, engage with those that have a separate agenda. My read of this? Foster Farms was cherry-picking which news organizations to respond to. And in doing that, they were avoiding tough questions in an attempt to control how journalists covered the outbreak. The press release Foster Farms refused to give me, said the company's most recent round of COVID testing had identified 193 positive cases at the plant in Fresno, but that none of those workers had any symptoms. But that press release didn't tell the whole story. One worker had already died at this point, and a later investigation by Cal OSHA, the state's workplace health and safety agency, found that two others, including Gregorio, were already in the hospital. Let's just step back for a second so I can give you some context of what else was going on around this time. This was December of 2020. Emails show Fresno County health officials showed up at the cherry plant to try to find out how the outbreak had started. So did Kalosha. Foster Farms knew they were coming, though, because county health officials gave them a heads up. 
Foster Farms later sent the county a report from a food safety consultant saying there was no evidence of significant COVID spread in the plant. That consultant, turns out he was on Foster Farms' own food safety advisory board. Back at the Singh house, the family tells me Baljinder Dillon was 65 when he died from complications of COVID-19 in late December. Jatinder Paul, his cousin, also got COVID but recovered. He says he remembers getting calls from Foster Farms asking when he was coming back to work. Jatinder Paul's son Ravi also remembers this. After 13, 14 days, he said, coming to work, coming to work, coming to work. I said, I don't want to lose my dad. I lose my uncle, you know, I don't want to lose my dad. Ravi called Baljinder uncle. The two families were really close. Jatinder Paul says he used to go to Baljinder for advice. Since he died, the grief feels like an amputation like losing an arm. Foster Farms has continuously called and asked me to come back, he says. But I told them I'm not going to work there anymore. He says he can't go back. For him, it's not worth it. If our lives, our family aren't safe, what good is the money? The same week Jatinder Paul's cousin Baljinder died, the Velasquez family, Rosa and her kids, were visiting Gregorio every day in the ICU at a hospital across town. They peered at him from the other side of a glass window. He was hooked up to all kinds of tubes and machines. One day, Rosa and Gregorio's daughter Yvonne says the nurses told the family her father wasn't doing well. I remember my brother calling me and telling me to hurry that something was happening. Yvonne says she and her family watched from the other side of the glass as her dad, weak from COVID pneumonia, went into cardiac arrest over and over. The hospital staff would do compressions and he would stabilize, but then it would happen again. They were kind of there just watching homeless outside from a window. And then the doctor came out and he was just like, well, there's nothing else that we can do. And that was it. Yvonne says she was in shock when her father died. It felt like it was out of the blue. It felt like like it wasn't supposed to be happening. Since they came back from the hospital that day, her mom, Rosa, has kept the candles in her living room burning. There's a noticeable silence in the room that she points out wasn't here before. She says nothing is the same. He was a husband. He was a dad. Now everything feels empty. You live because you have to keep living. There's a song by the Mexican band Los Fredis from the 70s that Rosa says Gregorio loved. It's called Se Ha Quebrado. It's about being left heartbroken and alone. She doesn't listen to it anymore. It's too painful now that he's gone. But she remembers how he would start singing it out of nowhere. 
si otra vez volviera el tiempo y con él la fantasía del cariño que se ha ido. Rosa says Gregorio was their household's breadwinner. He paid most of the bills. After he died, she thought about going back to work packing fruit, but her kids pleaded with her not to. They were scared. Look at what happened to dad, they said. And there is anger, you know, because he, he should be alive. In May of 2021, Kalosha issued multiple citations against Foster Farms. They said the company did not immediately report seven worker deaths and 10 employee hospitalizations, including Gregorio Velasquez and Baljinder Dillon. In a case file, one state investigator wrote, Foster Farms could have known and should have known of continuing COVID-19 hazards in the plant that posed a realistic possibility of causing serious illness or death. I asked Foster Farms about this and some of the other concerns of the families I talked to for this story. The company didn't respond. Foster Farms is now appealing the state's citations. It's really an injustice. That's Rosa's attorney, Ricardo Agustin Perez. He specializes in workers' compensation and is representing her and another widow of a Foster Farms employee who died from COVID. If you're not familiar with workers' comp, here's the basic idea. If you get injured or get sick at work, your employer, actually your employer's insurance, is supposed to pay. When the pandemic started, California passed a law so workers who got COVID during an outbreak at their workplace would have an easier time getting that money. But it's still not guaranteed. These insurance companies are just fighting tooth and nail. They want to make you prove that you, that you actually contracted this virus at work. It's prove something that really is, is in many ways impossible to prove definitively. If an employee gets COVID at work and dies, their family members can apply for death benefits— up to $320,000, plus $10,000 for the cost of a funeral. And if you're the primary breadwinner, that puts your family in a, you know, in a, in a really difficult position. Apart from having lost you know, their family member or loved one, you know, then they have to fight with an insurance company to maybe get $300,000. We don't know how many families of foster farms workers who died from COVID have gotten death benefits. But Ricardo says a lot of workers probably don't even know they're eligible. Through the windows of an ornate white temple in West Fresno, you can see a crystal chandelier. Lined up on either side of the entrance are the shoes of families already inside for the morning prayer. Women wearing colorful salvar kameez and flowing scarves slowly trickle in. Men with turbans follow, some holding the hands of small children. We can't go around foster farms because there's no like houses or apartments around there. So hitting up the Gordavaras, we end up hitting the larger community. Navdeep Kaur is an organizer with Jakara Movement. It's a nonprofit that advocates for the Punjabi community. She's setting up a folding table next to the front doors of this gurdwara. 
She's got free hand sanitizer, disinfectant wipes, and disposable masks. Throughout the day, people come up to the table and ask questions. Many of the younger men say they're long-haul truck drivers. A lot of the older generation tell her they work in food processing and warehouses. Amazon, fruit packing houses, and foster farms. A man with a long white beard and purple turban walks up. Nadeep gives him a brochure about workers' rights and asks, has he gotten COVID? Does he know anyone who has died of COVID? Where does he work? When they tell me they're like Post Farm or Amazon or like one of the big like warehouses and I'm like, oh, okay, well then this really applies to you, you know? So, but yeah, this is what we do. None of the workers she talks to seem to have heard of workers' comp. Navdeep says it's been that way everywhere she's gone. Flea markets, food drives, even knocking on people's doors. And that's a problem. Because you basically only have a year from the date you were injured or got sick to file a workers' comp claim, including for death benefits. After that, the statute of limitations expires. And even if you do apply on time, it can take a while for the case to be resolved and for families to actually get the benefits. Since we first aired this story in October, here are a few things that have happened. It's been almost 15 months since Rosa Velasquez's husband, Gregorio, died, and she's still waiting to hear whether she or her kids will get death benefits. Meanwhile, three of the temp agencies foster farms used to hire workers got their Cal OSHA penalties reduced after the companies appealed. Foster Farms is still appealing the state's citations against them. Again, that was KQED's Alex Hall, whose story first aired on the California Report magazine. This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. As the war in Ukraine rages on, I checked in with John Farrell. He teaches history at Fresno State, has spent decades studying Russia, and was living in Moscow when Putin came to power. Over the last uh, 22 years, I've kind of developed a kind of love-hate relationship uh, with that place, not with the people that I love, but with Russia itself. And a lot of that is, of course, due to Putin. And now that Russia has made the choice that they have made or that Russia's leaders has made the choice that they have made, it's, it's a very disappointing, heartbreaking kind of thing. And so for me personally, I'm quite disappointed. I'm quite, um, quite saddened. Are you surprised? I am surprised, actually. I think what we, what we do as human beings is we we generally try to be as hopeful as we can about life. And um, I think we have projected onto Putin our hopes, and we've missed some of the fundamental um, meanness that at least exists in him, if not in the broader uh, system, which I would argue that in some respects it does. But yeah, I, I am surprised. I was surprised in 2014 when, uh, when he marched in or when they marched in and, and annexed Crimea. And I was surprised in February when, when they attacked. I just, I couldn't see it happening. But again, it wasn't because of good analysis. It was because of my own projections about the rationality of leaders in the world, especially someone as powerful as Putin in a country as powerful as, as Russia. But 
I'm not the only one that missed it. Most of us missed it. You know, we just couldn't imagine that he would do something like this. And frankly, it's still hard to imagine after what, 86 days. So it's very disappointing and, and, and unexpected. So can, can you just based on your experience, paint a picture of what is happening within the country? I mean, obviously, there's been so much reporting about the degree of misinformation. Um, and, and we know that Putin has used uh, misinformation as a weapon to consolidate his power. How is this being perceived domestically? Well, you asked about misinformation. And I think there's a way in which Americans both dismiss and overemphasize uh, misinformation. In the case of Russia, though, and in the case of um, Vladimir Putin and the way that he has uh, used information, and I'll include historical information, which, of course, is sometimes a historical information or, frankly, wrong historical information, they and he have done a very good job of, of manipulating what people hear. They've done that technologically. They've done that through control of the media, but they've also done it through a kind of constant message that, that they've been giving for 22 years now. And what, what's happened is that the, the Russian people, at least a, a sizable portion of them, and I would say more than a majority, apparently are, are, are on board with this. I just read a piece this morning in the New York Times about soldiers and generals and journalists who are in favor of the war right now, basically criticizing Russia for not, not being um, aggressive enough and for not being warlike enough. I would venture to say that my friends anyway, if, if they were aware of what was happening, I think they would be disturbed. Uh, I just don't know how much accurate information they're getting. They're getting constant misinformation. So, you know, one of Putin's strategies as a leader for 22 years now has been to control the narrative. It's a very kind of postmodern uh, way of looking at the world, but he has shaped the message in a way that a sizable portion of the people who only get their information through TV have bought in. Uh, obviously, tens of thousands of people have left the country who didn't buy the narrative, and what the other percentage of the people are, 20, 30 percent, whoever they are, who think it's you know bunk or are opposed to it but not saying anything, it's just hard for me to determine at this point. But the misinformation, the control of the narrative, the argument that you know Ukraine is a fascist country, all of that stuff is manipulated uh, information, and and I would argue uh, much of it is is mi misinformation. How do you think? And again, it's it's difficult to predict what is happening in Putin's head. But what are your thoughts about how the uh, news this week that Sweden and Finland are going to be joining the NATO alliance? How might that shape Putin's actions moving forward? Well, again, let me own that I have been wrong predicting the future uh, on this subject uh, more often than I have been right. But, you know, I think everybody is aware that Putin made a, a massive miscalculation uh, seeking to divide Europeans from one another, divide the EU, uh, weaken NATO. I think the actions of Russia have, have done just the opposite. I think every, you know, I think most people uh, kind of believe that. There are signs right now that Putin is, that's a weird uh, word to use, but uh, being careful, He's scaling back a little bit, seems to have changed strategy. And by Putin, I mean, you know, the whole machine over there, the whole system. And, you know, it, it would seem that they are focusing in on trying to control Eastern Ukraine and 
the swath of land between the Donbass and Luhansk and, and Odessa. Um, I think, you know, they're going to at least try to secure that and uh, annex it. There are indications that they're trying to move forward with treating it like it's it's their territory now. They're certainly talking uh, like it is. But of course, you know, we don't know how the war is going to work out. Uh, we don't know what, you know, the $40 billion package that was just passed today uh, and will be signed into law very quickly, I'm sure, by the Biden administration. We just don't know what that uh, $40 billion is going to do. But uh, the fact of the matter is that in some respects, Ukraine is in a much better place than Russia uh, with reference to military hardware, provisions, you know, those kinds of things, technology, uh, spare parts, you know, all of those things that the West can offer uh, to Russia have, of course, uh, been uh, precluded or excluded, as it were, uh, by the sanctions. And so Russia is struggling with, with just the opposite. They're, they're struggling with spare parts. They're struggling with, you know, in some respects, a technology that's maybe half a generation behind. And so to predict how it's going to play out, I'm not sure. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, five or 10 years from now, we're looking at uh, Donetsk and, and Luhansk as being part of Russia. Whether or not the Russians can take Odessa and, um, you know, kind of landlock the Ukrainians. I'm no military person. I'm no military historian. But, you know, that that seems to be a very large concern. So uh, that's that's kind of, you know, I think it's 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 likely that. The war is going to go on for months, maybe even longer. Putin can certainly afford that, although I'm not sure he can afford to go on for a year or two. And of course, the other, you know, not just the other, but another thing that really concerns me about Russia itself is that they have turned themselves into an international pariah in every way. And they're going to suffer as a result of that for at least a decade, if not two you know, there's a historical analogy that you can look at. Look at uh, Germany, post-war Germany, 1945 onward. They had engaged in something that was uh, much more hideous um, ethically and morally uh, in the Holocaust and the way that they uh, conducted the war. And, you know, in some respects, they were kind of very quickly brought back in and integrated into the you know Western alliance. But that was because of the dynamics of the Cold War. Uh, no such thing is, is going to happen with Russia their economy and their connections economically and internationally, globally, the business that they do is, is, is going to have to change because, you know, Europe and the United States are, are doing a very good job of making it almost impossible for them to experience any kind of integration uh, in, the, in the Western world. And it's, it's scary, but that means that, you know, they're going to have to think about turning towards India and China as, as partners, uh, turning to the East. There's a lot of interesting kind of stuff about why that might happen in terms of, you know, how the Russians are trying to position themselves as outside of Europe. But they're in this kind of middle spot between Europe and, and Asia. And I think they're going to have to sidle up much more closely to China uh, and India. And we just don't know how that's going to play out. Uh, there are some indications that uh, China has been hacking the Russians, trying to get, you know, some secrets, some military secrets, that kind of thing. So, you know, uh, they're not the closest friends either as far as that goes. But, you know, my, my largest concern about the future, aside from the death and the, the, the destruction, is, of course, you know, what the world's going to look like for the next 10 or 20 years. And Again, I'm much more sympathetic and supportive of U Ukrainians than I am the Russians, but 
you know, again, after 30 years, 35 years of, you know, loving this country and studying it, it, it makes me sad that they are kind of going down this road that is that is going to hurt them greatly for a long time. And and frankly, you know, I think they deserve it. Well, I've been talking with Dr. John Farrell, lecturer of history at Fresno State. Thank you so much for for being with us. Thank you, Kathleen. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Applications are now being accepted for the sixth annual The Big Tell Film Competition, which awards 10 grants of $5,000 to documentary filmmakers that highlight the stories of the Central Valley. To learn more, I spoke with a former grant recipient, Jason Duong, as well as Brian Harley from CMAC, the nonprofit that runs the contest. The Big Tell is a regional filmmaking program that was started by the Central Valley Community Foundation in 2017. And uh, the idea is uh, we invite filmmakers uh, of all different skill levels in the Valley. So whether you're a student or, or amateur or aspiring filmmaker or someone who feels like they're a media professional, um, we invite them to kind of pitch us on a undiscovered or untold unknown story about the Central Valley. And, and then we select uh, 10 finalists who will then receive a $5,000 grant to create their short documentary. And, and really the idea behind this was that there's so many uh, amazing stories out there and they don't always get recognized or told uh, whether it's, you know, remarkable people or places or things or activities that are happening in the Central Valley. And we just wanted to create that opportunity for folks to, uh, you know, have a little bit of funding to help realize their story and make it a reality. And at the culmination of the Big Tell is, is the showcase. So we, we fund the 10 filmmakers and their 10 films. And then we have a big screening uh, of the films uh, as well. But then in addition to the funding, there's also support that you provide as well, right? Absolutely. So in addition to the $5,000 grant, each of the filmmakers will be able to work one-on-one with Sasha Brown-Rice, who is a Emmy-nominated documentarian uh, based out of Los Angeles. So yes, there's lots of uh, check-ins with Sasha from uh, the beginning stages of formulating your idea to putting it into production, shooting, filming, editing, and finally putting together the finished piece for the showcase. Well, Jason, you are a former recipient of the Big Tell grant. What was the experience like for you? The experience for me was, uh, it was pretty, it's pretty cool. Like just be able to get the grant. I was actually planning to make the film regardless if I would have got the Big Tell or not. Um, I was in the process of actually making it, and I just decided to apply when the Big Tell was announced. And then tell me a little bit about the film itself. It's called Love in Anxiety, and it um, captures the stories of Black people in the Central Valley following the death of George Floyd. How how did you come to this idea? So um, my friend Jalise, who worked on the film with me that's not here today, I actually asked her when when the death of George Floyd happened, I, I just asked like, 
I asked her if we could make something and then um, it was actually her idea. And then it was more of like, she told me like what, what kind of video she would think that would be more powerful. And then it was just a lot of talking between me and her of like, okay, so we have these resources. So let's see what we can make from there. And then what about working with, with CMAC and working with this uh, filmmaker? Was the support that you received? I mean, I'd imagine that was a big help in addition to the $5,000. Oh yeah, oh, definitely. Uh, Sasha was great. Um, she actually helped me think through a lot of the, the problems I was having, like especially early on. She really helped like guide the film in a certain way. So um, yeah, her feedback was was amazing. So Brian, you know, as you mentioned, the the big tell has been around for several years now, and so a number of stories have come to fruition as a result of this funding. Can you just give us a, a sense or a flavor of the kinds of stories that have been told over the years as a result of this competition? Absolutely. Well, and I just want to talk about Jason and Julie's film for a moment. Uh, Jason Julie won the grant in 2020. And the application period was in the summer of 2020 when our nation was seeing a lot of unrest from the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And we knew that we wanted to fund a story that touched upon that. Uh, you know, it was like an exposed nerve across our country. And, and we knew that there would be some unique stories here in the Valley that we could touch upon. And uh, it's, it's very unique in kind of the spectrum of the big tell films, you know, that we've seen over the last five years that we've, we've done this program, because it doesn't focus necessarily on something that's unique to the Valley, but it instead focuses on, you know, this very important issue of racial justice and, and how that has impacted local uh, arts, activists, students, you know, academics, so we just thought it was a very powerful idea and really wanted to provide them with one of the grants to make this happen. So we're, we're very thrilled with the work that Jason and Julie did and uh, also thrilled that uh, their film went on to win uh, some, some awards outside the Valley. So it was recognized at uh, the Alliance for Community Media's uh, annual film festival um, for uh, the, the Westerns, both the Western States region, but also nationally. So it was recognized as the best documentary in the Western region and also the best uh, programming related to racial justice issues uh, nationwide. So it's, it's amazing for their film to not only have been funded and told and, and showcased here in the Valley, but also recognized outside the Valley for, for their talents. Absolutely. Um, Congratulations, Jason. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So we just have a, a minute or two before we wrap up. And so I understand the applications for this year's uh, grant are due on July 12th. But in the meantime, there's a Q&A scheduled for people who might be interested in applying. Brian, can you just tell us a little about that? Absolutely. So on Tuesday, May 31st at 5 p.m., we will host a virtual Q&A on Zoom. You can sign up and, and find all the more information about the Big Tell at thebigtell.org. And yeah, we really encourage you, if you have any interest in uh, pitching a story for The Big Tell, uh, you attend that Q&A. Well, I've been talking with Brian Harley from Community Media Access Collaborative, better known as CMAC, and filmmaker Jason Duong. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. And that's today's Valley Edition. You can hear all this and more on our website, kvpr.org. You could also download the podcast and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We've got an app. It's called KVPR. 
The show is produced by our news team, including Alice Daniel, Carrie Klein, Mavi Bolaños, and Sarith Hawk. Technical support is from Don Weaver. I'm your host, Kathleen Schock. Thanks for listening. Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at CalEndow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org slash health dash equity.